Hi, this is Benjamin Joff, partner at SOSV. We invest in early-stage startups with a focus on deep tech, ranging from cellular agriculture to neurotech and service robots. In this podcast, startup founders and investors tell us how innovation can go from lab to market. A lot has happened in the past three to five years to be more innovative and sustainable. And apparel is one of the industries that was hardest hit by COVID-19. So we're seeing opportunities where production can be digitized. Things like virtual sampling, having greater transparency and traceability of materials. We're also seeing trends in localizing production and on demand. Alex Chan is the co-director of the Mills Fabrica, an investment fund on the industry platform focused on fashion and lifestyle. In this conversation, we talk about the growing interest of this industry for deep tech to improve productivity, reduce its environmental impact, and build more resilient supply chains. We share examples of solutions for digital fabrication, on-demand, and local production. We talk about new and sustainable biomaterials and technologies for defect prevention or waste recycling. Finally, we discuss strategies and resources for startups to engage with the apparel industry. Hi, Alex. Great to have you today. Pleasure to be here. So I wanted to have you on this podcast because uh, we're diving into some industry-specific topics. And I thought you'd be a great guest to talk about what's going on in the fashion and textile industry. So maybe to get started, if you can tell more about uh, who is the Mills Fabrica and uh, what do you guys do? Yeah, sure. So the Mills Fabrica is an innovation platform focused on textile, so technology and lifestyle. It started by Nanfung Group in Hong Kong. So Nanfung mainly does property development and investments now, but their first business was in textiles manufacturing. And a couple of years ago, the group's third generation, Vanessa, she decided to take the last textile factory they had in Hong Kong and to convert it into a retail innovation hub. So part of the mills is experiential retail mall, but the other part of it is an incubator and investment platform. And we invest in early stage startups and also do knowledge sharing with industry about um, textile sustainability and innovation. Okay, so you support startups and what stages are you guys focused on? Yeah, so we typically look at anything from C to Series B. And we look at companies um, from all around the world, as long as there's a connection to either the apparel and textiles or agri and food value chain, we would look at it. Okay. And so personally, what brought you into that business and what background did you have? I started my career in management consulting and private equity, uh, but during that time, I was always passionate about you know investing for impact. So uh, when Fabrica started three or four years ago, they were building a new venture fund focused on helping lifestyle industries to be more innovative and sustainable. And it was a great opportunity and yeah, has been a great experience so far helping to build a new organization and platform. You guys just published a couple of reports around technology innovations in the fashion industry and more recently also a report about the impact of COVID-19 on the apparel supply chain. And those are really great sources and we're probably going to cover several of the topics of the reports in this podcast. When you look at fashion as an industry, Relative to other industries like, you know, electronics or internet economy, it has been one that has been slower to see new innovations, but a lot has happened in the past three to five years. So one of our reports, State of Textile, gives a good overview into different innovations happening across the supply chain and value chain. While one of the new reports that we have talks about impact of COVID-19 because apparel is one of the industries that was hardest hit. So that really looks at the road ahead, examining some of the key impacts and innovation trends ahead. 
Before we dive into the challenges and opportunities in the, the fashion and textile industry, what's your description of it? It starts with the yarn, goes maybe all the way to garments, and there's a lot of things in between and maybe other applications of textiles. Yeah, so we like to call it like technology and style. And we see it broadly across the value chain. So all the way upstream, um, it's really all about material and supply chain. So from, like you mentioned, yarn to fabric production, and then it goes into apparel itself, like in terms of brands and sort of products that consumer uses, and then all the way to retail as well into stores and e-commerce, omni-channel technologies. So that's just looking at apparel. But beyond apparel, if you look at textiles as well, there's broader applications in things like furniture, automotive, construction, for example. And so China and Hong Kong used to be a huge center for textile and fashion manufacturing and still is to a large extent. But some of it has also moved to other geographies. So could you give some insights about like how are things distributed around the world? Yeah, so you're right in saying that um, a huge uh, production of uh, apparel is actually based in Asia. So China being the predominant one used to be in Hong Kong. But over the past one or two decades, a lot of production has shifted to both South Asia and Southeast Asia. So you're looking at countries like Bangladesh, India, as well as Vietnam. But obviously, there's still like higher end kind of uh, fabrics or textiles from Europe. So in places like Italy and Turkey. And when talking about fashion, also, we all realize that it's a massive industry. Do you have a sense of how large maybe some of the segments? Really depends on how you define it, as you mentioned, right? If it can go anywhere from half a trillion to one to two trillion in USD value, depending on whether you're just looking at apparel or you're looking at textiles and fabrics manufacturing as well. Definitely a huge industry. And as you said, like this is an industry that's been largely overlooked regarding innovation. There's relatively few startups going into that field, a uh, few people who have both the technical chops and the industry knowledge to actually bring innovation. But this is changing and that's really what's interesting. And um, like, well, one thing I wanted to discuss with you is like some of the current uh, challenges on the on transformation of the industry and probably the, the first of which is probably around sustainability. Yeah, sustainability has become a hot topic in the fashion industry, especially in the past three to five years. First off, most of you might not know this, but fashion is actually the second largest industry with the most negative impacts on the environment. And specifically, you're looking at things like carbon emissions in production. For example, material feedstock, right? A huge majority of um, fashion material is actually polyester, so plastic-based. It also ties to the other large one, it's cotton. And at the same time, there's a huge amount of water and chemical usage in the supply chain. When you think about dyeing or for, for example, things like production of denim jeans, huge amount of water wastage or chemical usage. And of course, pick the most important one, waste. When you look at the amount of unsold inventory, when you look at the amount of consumer textile waste, clothes that you buy and keep in your wardrobe, and a lot of them end up going to landfills or being burned. Overall, like huge issues with regards to sustainability. The logistics is also part of it. Yeah, you can imagine like transportation, uh, distribution, especially with e-commerce, and again, with logistics, it also um, includes like packaging that actually goes into the process as well. This year, it's been a very like transformative year for the industry of putting a lot of pressure, uh, partly uh, due to COVID. Uh, so could you describe some of the impact of COVID on, uh, on that industry? A lot has happened in the past six months that has really affected both the supply chain and retail. And 
what we've seen is that on one hand in the supply chain, there's a massive disruption and breakage. You have parts of the supply chain missing raw materials due to shutdowns and lockdowns in different places. For instance, like India sources a lot of trims and elastics from China. Uh, at the same time, also because of the lockdowns, a lot of it, there were a lot of like cancellation and all this by brands to manufacturers, resulting in a lot of factory closures. And obviously on the retail side as well, a lot of the decline in offline traffic has led to huge buildup of unsold inventory, all those issues, and furthermore, like issues with the labor force, right? Unemployment, strained relationships between brands and manufacturers. So overall, uh, we've seen quite a strong impact due to COVID-19. And there's even aspects around like production processes and, and also in retail, the need to disinfect uh, the retail locations, the need to have a distanciation among customers or among workers in the factories. Yeah, so a lot of the factories, especially when COVID first broke out in February, factories in China had to be shut down for safety and distancing measures. And there was an instance then in Feb and March where brands couldn't get new inventory because of the factory's closures. And now the factories are reopening, how to actually think about some of the safety considerations as well. Do you have some information about how they deal with those safety concerns? Because I, I understand that like China and Hong Kong in particular have had really good results in curbing the spread of COVID. But uh, what's going on within the factories to help with reopening? Part of it is on an individual basis. So reminders to workers about having their mask on, having temperature checks quite frequently, sanitizers, disinfectants available on factory floors. But the other part of it also has to do with the factory line, that making sure there's enough distance where possible or reducing output slightly if needed to ensure safety. But that also, again, leads to longer-term opportunities in terms of digitizing or making more automated kind of productions. So do you see that this is actually accelerating that trend toward digitization? Yeah, so there has been a lot of uh, short-term impacts on productions output, but we also see that these impacts would help to accelerate the whole supply chain to be more digital and also more automated. So we're seeing opportunities where production can be digitized, things like virtual sampling, having greater transparency and traceability of materials. We're also seeing trends in localizing production. So having materials that you can source locally and also production that can be made on demand. Same for retail side, like optimizing inventory management, for example. People probably haven't set foot in a garment factory and uh, haven't seen some of those uh, very impressive machines like the circular knitting machine, for example. It's a very large uh, equipment that's already very automated, but there's still a lot of steps in the garment production that are not automated. W what are the, the, the steps that are now being transformed uh, through digitization? When it comes to what we call sort of like digitizing production, right? part of it is in the design process before where you need to actually produce physical samples as a way to get the hand feel or to look at how fit works. A lot of it has now become virtual thanks to improvements in software that's able to do 3D stimulation or design and also allows sort of more robust uh, manipulating of fits on a software. So notable examples in the industry, Browse, Clo are big names um, focusing on this space. But the other thing that you mentioned is also at the factory level, right? And a lot of it has to do with QC or defect checking. Right now, 
in a lot of these factories, it's still very manual or labor sort of intensive. You need someone walking along, along a factory line doing manual checks for defects. So I think one of the um, companies from SOSV SmartTax actually does exactly that, like defect checking for circular knitting uh, machines. And we're seeing more and more of these innovations that helps uh, not just on QC, but also uplift productivity. Actually, it's maybe a good time to uh, to talk about some examples of uh, companies with uh, with advanced technologies that are impacting this whole process and supply chain. So you mentioned SmartX that works on a fault detection for fabric, like really early on, so that it doesn't propagate to entire batches on the along the supply chain and ends up in the in, uh, unsold inventory on landfill. But there's also a lot of work regarding things like new materials, notably sustainable materials that are very interesting. Because of COVID nineteen, it has resulted in breakage uh, and you realize oh, if you're sourcing materials from different places most brands don't have visibility if materials can all be produced locally there's huge advantages and part of the other driver is that when you look at supply of say cotton growth of cotton um, itself has been quite stagnant or slow growth in the past few years so there's opportunities to create new form of materials that are more sustainable and at the same time uh, bio-based so some examples like Famous one in the industry, Botrats, they do biomimicry for silk proteins. Another example in our portfolio, mango materials, what they do is that they do they capture methane gas and try convert that into biopolymers that can be used for both you know, producing fibers or for packaging. And we also have companies that are doing more recycling, right? So taking all kind of garment waste uh, and then converting it into new fibers of help. So we have, again, two two of our companies, Renewsa and Avenue, sort of doing more work to take old denim jeans or cotton waste and then changing them into new pulp fibers. And for sustainability, we also have a common investment, a company called Hue, that works on uh, basically uh, bio-produced uh, indigo dyes. And you were mentioning how, um, notably for jeans manufacturing, harmful the classical dyes are for the environment. Yeah, so when you look at like uh, denim jeans production, uh, there's huge amount of chemical usage in indigo dye synthesis or indigo uh, reduction, uh, and also just the amount of water usage. Here or Tinctorium, what they have done is through a bio pathway, uh, it bypasses the need for any sort of chemical usage in synthesis or reduction. And at the same time, through their production of indigo dyes, it actually reduces the amount of water usage. So yeah, quite excited about what they're doing for the denim industry. Another aspect you mentioned is localizing production. So that was the idea of using either local material, but also maybe having more like micro factories and possibly also the ability to create customized garments. And there's a couple of companies, like one we have as a common portfolio company called Unspun that is doing uh, basically tailor-made jeans based on 3D body scans. So what interested you in that company? When you look at fashion manufacturing, a huge part of it isn't as automated as, say, electronics or some of the other products. And there are two key uh, reasons for that. One is that fabric itself is a lot harder to manipulate. You need a strong precision in the kind of robotics that's required for automation. The other reason is that when it comes to apparel products, fits and sizing is an issue. You need clothing that is off the right uh, fits and measurement to do on-demand production. So Unspun looks at the, these two issues in parallel. They are producing a 3D weaving technology that allows directly weaving panel for jeans or weaving a pair of jeans directly. At the same time, they also have a 3D fit and sizing algorithm 
the best um, tailor measurements based on um, capturing the body's fits and sizing preferences. Those factors combined, the long-term vision is to enable on-demand production. Instead of going into a store where everything has been pre-made, you can actually make something on-demand. Yeah, I guess like the two aspects is the, the on-demand production is great uh, to make sure that you don't have unnecessary inventory, but the custom fit is also very impressive. I remember discussing with the founders who basically explained that they were doing away entirely with the idea of size, like S, M, L, like you don't have to have a preset size. It ha- it, it's going to be a perfect fit for you. And you can also choose like the cut uh, that you prefer, but the sizing is perfectly adapted to your measurements. Do you see those also as an evolution in the industry? Part of it is consumer driven. I think the Gen Z millennial consumer, they like personalization. They like brands that are more customized towards their needs. But the more important thing, as you mentioned, is actually inventory waste. So you look at industry like food, right? Most restaurants you're going to food is actually uh, made for you when you order it. Whereas in fashion, it's completely the reverse. You basically get whatever it's inside a store. But brands are cautious of that because of the amount of unsold inventory that happens. And if there's a way to actually start shifting more of production to be on demand, it greatly helps alleviate the waste issue. Yeah, like uh, I'm French. I learned only recently that the almond croissant was a recycling of the previous day croissant. I, I totally understand on the business side and it's uh, it's also a great product, but I also see the limits of it. If you have too many croissants, you're not going to sell that many almond croissants anyway. So there's a limit even to recycling in every industry. So that's really interesting to see how the, the garment industry is looking at it. And some of it has to do like with, with new materials. In our portfolio, particularly in the biotech portfolio, we have some interesting companies like one called Alginet that does uh, algae-derived biodegradable yarns and textiles. We have another one that's uh, kind of a borderline on textiles called Microworks doing mushroom-based leather. You mentioned one uh, derived from methane, but you also mentioned both threads uh, that does uh, silk protein. A- any others on that front? We talk a lot about waste and that are a lot of recycling technologies, but the other huge issue in fashion is really in terms of uh, what we call renewables or uh, sort of issues with degradability. So whenever you put in clothes, uh, especially those with polyester into your washing machine, bits of the fibers actually come out as microfibers. And then these end up going to the water system and into oceans. You basically have cumulative of like tiny bits of plastic waste uh, that actually doesn't biodegrade. So what a lot of these companies are doing, you mentioned, for example, LG making fibers from um, seaweed or kelp. Uh, we have another company in our portfolio, Algolife, that does bio-based dyes as well as bio-based uh, fibers, also from seaweed and algae. The point is to produce fibers that are biodegradable and really helps uh, address some of the plastic issues. On the other side of the equation, it's with regards to synthetics, right? And a lot of these right now are actually uh, part of the issue is that it's animal-based, like leather itself, um, huge amount of issues with animal rights. But at the same time, in the tanning process for leather, huge environmental impact there. You mentioned microworks. Uh, boat treads also have their own mycelium leather, Milo. And hopefully we'll, we'll see more of these new companies as well. So maybe one question for some of the startups listening and some of the investors in that field is how can those startups engage efficiently with the textile industry? Like where to go? Should they go to the brands? Should they go to manufacturers? How, how does this work? We've realized that you need to bring everyone to the table because typically the way the industry works out with some of our startups is that in initial product pilots, brands are the first point of contact. 
you want your technology to be able to meet their specifications. But after that, they would then refer the startups to the suppliers and manufacturers that they work with as a way to adopt and scale up the technology. Typically, what we find helpful is that first point of contact, innovation or sustainability or sourcing teams of brands, you want, as a startup, you want to be able to find a promoter working inside a brand who can help you advocate for your technology inside and get through the different hoops required. Another good tip is really to focus on the specifications, right? So when you have like certifications like, you know, life cycle analysis or other certifications, it's helpful for brand acceptance. So basically try to go top down, starting with the brand who are consumer facing and have probably the most people out there looking at innovations and the ways to to create interesting products for the customers. Yeah. Part of the reason is also when you do a pilot uh, product collection with a brand, it actually helps drive consumer awareness in the industry. Uh, so brands are definitely a good point to get to. Complementing that is that a lot of brands have started incubator programs or accelerator programs that are great way for founders to understand more about fashion industry. So some of our partners, Fashion for Good in Amsterdam, the H&M also does its own Global Change Awards. These are excellent programs to um, understand different touch points and challenges within the fashion space. And those are generally uh, not looking for taking equity in companies, but really trying to attract startups to engage with the brand. Yes. So for example, H&M, Global Change Awards is actually grants money equity free and, but beyond the cash benefit, it's really the industry support and knowledge that they can create. And also at the same time, the awareness uh, that it helps generates in the industry to attract other brands and consumers, a knowledge of your brand and startup. And across all the different innovations and startups you've seen, can you maybe give some examples of startups? where things worked really well, and maybe some examples that you don't necessarily have to name, where things didn't work and explain why it, it seemed that it didn't work out. So some of the key things that we have seen is that, first of all, like brands and manufacturers are impatient. The moment you mention about something, they want it now. They don't want it three or four years from now. So one of the good lessons we have seen from the Hewitt Tinktoran team is that um, they spent 10 years developing a technology in the lab before they actually took it register it as a business and commercialize it. And now there's strong speed to market and development. Then that's something that we find helpful in general and engaging with brands. The other thing also is that technical founders, they might not have industry expertise and uh, it's helpful to bring into your management team people who might have fashion experience. So imagine both threats, Sue Levine, um, their CCO, it's came from, with huge experience from Nike and was, you know, hugely um, beneficial to the teams scaling up in terms of commercialization. But beyond that, what we have also find extremely helpful pilot product launches. So one of our portfolio, Renew Cell, they just launched a new jeans collection with Levi's last month, and they're calling it their most sustainable pair of jeans um, ever produced. So that helps to get awareness in consumer minds. Those are really great tips. The idea of getting some products out there, even if it's a, like a pilot line, makes it so much more real and then probably helps to get other engagements with other brands later on. It's also a way to, when you have like consumer awareness of something, it creates demand and that demand helps brands to take notice that they should do something that's also sustainable. And that's where you generate subsequent interest. And it also ties into the other point that you mentioned, right? where it hasn't worked too well is that continuation is very important. We've seen some cases where certain startups would launch maybe one product or one collection. And then afterwards, there's 
no further news of further scaling up commercialization. So ensuring that there's a pipeline of sort of product launches and scaling up uh, becomes important. That makes sense. One of the challenges companies have in engaging with uh, large brands or any large company is finding the right entry point on the contact person. Like what department or what type of position is the best fit for a startup? Is it uh, like on the business side, the innovation department, or what seems to work better? There's different structures and dynamics within each brand or manufacturer. But a good touch point typically is a lot of brands have started to have innovation and sustainability teams. A key mission for them, it's really to look for new um, startups or um, new tech innovations that they can work with. The other good lesson from there, again, it relates to it's helpful to have a a platform who is helping you to make that connection. We do things a lot where we would introduce a brand to a company. We will help sit in on those meetings to facilitate. Same for some of our partners like Fashion for Good or we mentioned H&M Global Change Awards. Those kind of incubation programs, super helpful as a way to get startups introduced to a brand. So establish that first contact. Actually, they they already have that contact and they can do that translation from the startup world to the, the more corporate world. Yeah. And it's, it's also a good way to, for them, for startups to understand a bit more about what the brands are looking for. So typically, um, when you have first point of contact with an innovation or sustainability team, afterwards, the next point will likely be with the actual sourcing or R&D teams who would be doing the testing and specifications. And you would really want to, you know, understand a bit more about, you know, what exactly are they uh, looking for? What kind of quality requirements does your technology need to be up before um, you can actually scale with some of their manufacturers? So a third party organization who knows them because they've seen that process through previous uh, cases is very helpful as a guide. Yeah. So both third party organizations, as well as the first touch point with the innovation sustainability teams inside the brand, they would be able to share a bit more about, you know, what that common process looks like. I realize that we broached upon it, but we didn't really uh, talk in a lot of details is a 3D printing. So we mentioned Unspun as kind of 3D weaving. We have another company that's uh, called Knitrate doing a 3D printer for knitwear. Is 3D print relevant for the fashion and fabric industry? One of the large manufacturers of manufacturing equipment is Koshima Saki. So they have been doing a lot of work in terms of 3D uh, knitting machines. And it's something that's increasingly helpful because part of it is that it allows you to do a lot of the designing on a software itself and do the customization on software and then getting it to generate um, directly. But again, we mentioned like the challenges for adoption. Partly again, it's in fits and needing to get a fit and sizing part right. At the same time, also to ensure that the solutions uh, can become cost competitive at a factory level. Yeah, that's often the challenge with all the many of the cutting edge innovations is that it works in the lab, then it works in the pilot, but until the cost is acceptable to consumers, it's it's very difficult, even if you start with premium products. And that is understandable as well. We what we find also is that a lot of brands are aware that it would take time for these companies to become of a certain scale to bring the cost down. And in the short term, what we have also find helpful is that go after products that have a higher margin or price point, right? So typically looking at luxury, looking at um, certain kind of performance or spots where that's where you can, with pilot launches, brands are willing to invest a bit more to test out consumer demand. And then that also helps buy runway for startups to bring their costs down. Okay. 
So maybe to close up, what is it that you guys are looking for next at the Mills Fabrica? Yeah, some things that we, we uh, continue to look for um, so bio-based synthetics uh, that are at scale and cost competitive. We probably mentioned, again, huge amount of plastic usage in the apparel industry right now. So one example, again, when you look at most of our shoes or footwear, the soles of the shoes, it's something that it's in need of much better sustainable solutions. We give our residencies to university students. And one of our winners from two years back, Jen Keen, she, what she's doing is basically growing shoes in the lab through microbial weaving. Concepts like that are addressing plastic usage in the industry. The other thing that we're looking at more, so packaging that we mentioned, uh, that's again, biodegradable, but also durable and cost competitive. And lastly, on the processing side. So dyes, reducing chemical usage or water usage in the production process, something that, again, we haven't seen as much innovation on and something that we're actively looking for. Alex, thanks a lot for all your insights and we'll point uh, to your reports in the description and uh, looking forward to seeing uh, many more interesting innovations come out of the Mills Fabrica. Yeah, thanks for having us and um, exciting to discuss more. Subscribe now for future episodes, follow us on Twitter at Lab2Market and SOSV or visit our other podcasts, Designing Science on Biology and China Startup Pulse on Asia Cross-Border Internet. Mm-hmm.